Hebrews chapter 13. There we go. It's better if I turn the microphone on, huh? We are this morning coming to the end of what's been really a long series for us through through the book of Hebrews. I think we've taken some breaks uh, here and there, but but been at it for quite some time. Uh, and we're closing this morning with verses 20 and 21 um, with this benediction. Uh, a benediction is just simply a, a prayer of blessing, oftentimes at the end of a letter or at the end of a service. And um, that, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So Hebrews 13, verse number 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Many of the Christians that I know and, and have uh, worked with over the years, I, I think a, a common struggle is simply knowing how to pray and sort of maturing and growing uh, in your prayer life. Oftentimes um, we can, not that we're willing to do this, but but it seems that we kind of fall into just sort of saying superficial things or maybe there's some trite phrases or expressions that we've heard and so we just repeat those over in prayer. Uh, you've heard some of them before. Lord bless the gift and bless the giver. Set a hedge of protection about us. Give us traveling mercies. There's nothing wrong with, with saying those things, but uh, oftentimes I think they, they become just what we fall back to when we're uncomfortable and we don't know what to say. And, and sometimes they can just become vain repetitions, things that we say un, unthinkingly. If we want to grow in our prayer life, and you've probably heard me talk about this before we do this on Wednesday night, one of the best things that we can do is learn to pray through Scripture. Uh, that is, to open the Word of God uh, and to begin to read it and think about and contemplate about the, the meaning of it uh, and then uh, allow our prayers to uh, be birthed out of what the Word of God says. Of course, you can do that anywhere in, in Scripture. Uh, but one of the helpful places to start, in addition to the Psalms, is that many times there are actual prayers in Scripture. We're looking at one of them this morning, a, a benediction. There are prayers. The Apostle Paul has prayers throughout his, his letters. You could look at Ephesians 1, 16 to 18 is a prayer. Uh, Ephesians 3, 14 uh, is another prayer. There, there are many prayers in, in the Apostle Paul's writings. And so it, you can simply pray what the apostles were praying. You can pray what uh, God would have us pray through His Spirit. As I mentioned, there are many benedictions in the book, in fact, uh, in the Bible. In fact, most of the New Testament books end with some sort of benediction. Um, the book of Revelation, uh, actually, toward the beginning of the book, has, has a benediction prayer, a, a prayer of blessing. It's, it says in Revelation, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You can see another example of this kind of benediction prayer in First Thessalonians 5.23. And that's what we have this morning is a, a prayer of benediction. I think it's a worthy endeavor then for us to spend time thinking this morning uh, about what this prayer teaches us 
in general, but, but specifically to think about us praying this. I think we ought to learn to pray as the apostles prayed. And so there are three things. I'm going to focus primarily on the first two of them uh, and, and then bring in the last point at the end. But the first thing that we see is the recipient of this prayer. We could ask the question, to whom do we pray? The recipient of our prayer. Uh, we see this in this prayer in Hebrews in our benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. All of that is sort of a, a, an addressing of the prayer to God. And one of the things that we need to understand when it comes to our prayers is that the richness and depth and effectiveness of our praying is, is really directly tied to our view of the one to whom we are praying, the, the one to whom we are addressing our petitions and, and our prayers. So many Christians, I think, struggle in their prayer life, not, not because they don't know what to say, but because they're really not certain of who to whom they are speaking. They sort of have a, a low view or a small view of God. You know, one of the repeated instructions that Jesus gives to us regarding prayer is that we would pray in faith. And a lot of times we have a misconception of what that means. What does it mean to, to pray in faith? Sometimes we almost think of faith as sort of some kind of mystical, magical substance, and I just got to get a, enough faith, kind of just believing that whatever I ask is, is going to almost miraculously come about mystically, uh, as if prayer itself has uh, some kind of uh, unique power. But really, when when we understand the idea that we're to pray in faith. You understand that God is the object of our faith, right? We don't put faith in prayer. We put faith in God. And so when he says to have, have faith when you pray, uh, what he's inviting us to is to understand who God is and to trust him more wholly and more completely. To pray with faith is not to somehow sufficiently convince yourself that, that something miraculous miraculous will happen but to wholly trust in the almighty power of god who is indeed able to move mountains our faith the object of it is in the lord and so we've got to ever be mindful of who we're praying to jesus taught us didn't he in in the lord's prayer to pray our father who art in heaven he, he wasn't just trying to come up with oh i got to start it some way and sometimes i think that's how we begin prayers as dear lord and uh heavenly father and we, we throw that out as if almost like well i got to kind of get warmed up before i really get to the heart of the prayer but what we need to understand is that in addressing our prayer to the lord uh we we are not just getting warmed up for prayer we're recognizing and we're fixing our minds on the one to whom we are praying Prayer must be birthed out of an awareness of the greatness and the goodness of our God in all of his perfections and from a deep understanding and love for what he has done for us in the gospel. The writer here illustrates this for us as he begins this prayer. He addresses it to God, but he doesn't just say, Dear Lord or our Heavenly Father. He, he, he gives much theological, deep uh, contemplation to whom he is praying. Notice, first of all, that he addresses it to the God of peace. 
to the God of peace. Donald Guthrie uh, says that uh, God is described as the God of peace. That is one who not only exemplifies peace in himself, but who promotes peace among his people. And so when we talk about God as the God of peace, and when he's addressing this prayer to the God of peace, he's recognizing that God is at peace within himself. And then also, secondarily, that that because he is a God of peace in himself, then that he brings about peace and, and he promotes and is the author of peace among us, among humanity and among his people. God is a, a God of peace. It's wonderful to think about the fact that our God is a triune God. There's one, one God, and we've talked about that before, in three persons, and, and yet they exist eternally as three persons in perfect unity. There, there's, no, uh, there's no division in the Godhead. In fact, theologians are, are, are often pointing out that, that within God, there's only one divine will. That's an important theological th- truth. There's only one divine will. So it isn't as if the son has his own will and he's saying, I want to do this. And the father has his will. And he's saying, I want to do this. And there's some kind of conflict within God. No, there are three persons in the Godhead and they exist in perfect unity. And there's no dimension. There, there's no manner in which God is in turmoil within himself sometimes you and i can be at turmoil within ourselves can't we we can feel this way kind of and then and then on the other side we we kind of feel the the other way at the same time we're, we're divided we have we have different emotions and we have different desires that sometimes are are at conflict with with each other right i desire to be thin but i also desire to eat a you know that double cheeseburger and and 800 calories worth of french fries, right? And then top it off with some ice cream. I have conflicting desires, and, and those kinds of things create inner turmoil with, within us. And, and sometimes it's, it's far worse. Sometimes there are desires to do things that we ought not to do, and then that, that uh, in doing those behaviors, then we bring about destruction, and we have a desire to be freed from these destructive forces within our life. But when we think about God, God is a God of peace. There's no inner turmoil. All of his characteristics, all of his qualities, everything about him is in perfect unity. He is the God of peace. But when the writer of Hebrews says that he's the God of peace, I think he primarily means that he's the God who promotes peace. He's the God who brings about peace. His personal quality of peace then leads him to pursue peace with sinful man. Because God exemplifies peace, he therefore promotes peace. He's the author of peace. He's the source of peace. And that's what God has done for us in the gospel, isn't it? By giving his son to be our sacrifice. And we've seen so much of this in the book of Hebrews. He has made peace with us. He made the peace. We didn't make the peace. We, we were his enemies, but he has reconciled us to himself through his son. Romans 5 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not necessarily directly referenced. This idea of reconciliation in the book of Hebrews is not directly referenced uh, in, in Hebrews. However, it's, it's everywhere. When you start to look at it, all of the old covenant system which Daniel talked about earlier, the the whole sacrificial system, all of it was based upon this this concept or this idea, you're not at peace with me. 
That's why you have to have a priest. You can't just come to me. That's why you need to offer sacrifices. That's why there's this separation and there's this distance. I'm, I'm sort of allowing you to come in, but, but there are all of these qualifying things that you have to do because you are not at peace with me. You have not been reconciled. Your sin has brought a, a separation or a division. But through Jesus Christ... We have been reconciled to God through his blood, through his sacrifice. We have peace with God. And that's why he, the writer of Hebrews can say in chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. You hear that this morning? We can come with confidence into the holy place because we're at peace with God. He's not angry with us. There's no, there's no division. There's no animosity there. And what an important truth as we begin to pray, as we enter into prayer, as he does so, so here, and he's addressing this prayer. He's recognizing that this is the God of peace. This is the God who has reconciled me to himself so that when you and I pray, we're, we're not praying to a God who's angry at us. Praise the Lord. We're not praying to a God who, who wants nothing to do with us or whose judgment and wrath is being ready to be poured out on us or a God who is distant. We are praying to a God with whom we are at peace. And we are at peace because of what he's done through his son, Jesus Christ. He is a God of peace. We pray also to the one who has raised our Lord Jesus. You see that? Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Some have, have noticed uh, in the book of Hebrews that this is the first direct reference to the resurrection, and it comes all the way at the benediction. Um, and, and yet, on, on further reflection, uh, with the help of Tom Schreiner and his commentary, uh, we see that although the resurrection is not mentioned directly or specifically very often in the book of Hebrews. Really, when you look at it, it's all over the place. The, the resurrection or the idea or the concept is, is all over it. So, so he says this, this is from Schreiner. He says, the resurrection, contrary to the opinion of some scholars, plays a major role in Hebrews. Jesus, and so he begins then to cite out some of the, the things that, that point to the resurrection. Jesus cried out to God, and was saved from death by being raised from the dead. That's in Hebrews 5, 7. Jesus enters the heavenly sanctuary as the resurrected and exalted Lord. You see, the reason he can enter into heaven is because it assumes the resurrection. That's chapter 6, verse 20. He is the Melchizedekian priest that we talked about uh, that abides forever as a priest, and he does so by virtue of the resurrection. That's Hebrews 7, 3. And what, Je what sets apart Jesus as a priest from the old covenant priest is that he lives, verse, chapter 7, verse 8. For he has an indestructible life, chapter 7, verse 16. He isn't like the Levitical priest who were hindered by death, but he remains forever and he always lives, chapter 7, verses 23 through 25. Jesus is the re resurrected Lord sitting at God's right hand. Hand. And there are many times when it references the fact that he sits at the right hand of, fa of the Father. And he does all of that by virtue of the fact that he's been resurrected. And so the fact that Christ has been raised should give us great confidence 
in our prayer life. As we pray to the Father through the Son, we can do so with confidence because our mediator has been resurrected and he ever lives. He lives forever to make intercession, precisely to make intercession for you and I. And that's what it says in chapter 7, verse 25. He always lives to make intercession for us. What an encouraging thing to know that Christ was resurrected and one of the chief works that he has taken on in his resurrected life in heaven with the Father is, is to intercede for us. That is, to take our prayers to the Father, to take our needs to our heavenly Father. And so when we pray to the God who raised Jesus from the dead, it ought to give us confidence in our prayer. And it says also that he's the great shepherd of the sheep. He raised Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. And so we see here uh, another important truth as we're addressing this prayer. A shepherd is one who loves and one who provides for the sheep. He's one who meets the needs of the sheep. His entire vocation really is bound up in caring for helpless sheep. Sheep can't care for themselves. They can't provide for themselves. They can't protect themselves. And so what a wonderful truth it is for us then that the one to whom we are praying is the great shepherd of the sheep. He's the one who cares for us. He's the one whose entire vocation in one sense is bound up in caring for you and for me. Nowhere is that, is that picture of God as our shepherd or Christ as our shepherd so beautifully stated as in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You, sometimes I think we read that and we read it almost as sort of a resolve. The Lord is my shepherd, I really got to try not to want. But that's not what he's saying there, right? The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not be in want. I, I shall not have anything that, that I shall not have any lack. God will, as my shepherd, He will provide everything for me. I, I'm not going to be in a position in which my shepherd is not going to care for me, or He is not going to protect me, or He is not going to provide for me. The Lord is my shepherd, and therefore I shall not be in want. And then we hear all of the provision that our shepherd makes for us. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And again, he isn't saying that sometimes like we say, surely, like surely that would happen, like as if it maybe wouldn't happen. But when he says surely, that, that is with a confidence, it will happen. It's sure, it's certainly uh, certain that God, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Of course, this imagery is fulfilled in Jesus Christ who is called the Good Shepherd. And here in our passage, it's addressed to the great shepherd of the sheep. What a wonderful reality to know that the one to whom we pray is our shepherd who cares for us, who loves us, who provides, who protects us. Secondly, this morning that we see the substance 
of the prayer. For, for what should we pray? And, and this so often is where we struggle, isn't it? We pray for our job. We pray for our children. We pray for our physical needs. And, and then we're done. What else do I say? What do I say to God? But, but, but really the focus of our prayer so much should, should be on our spiritual need. Do, do you understand that there are physical needs? Yes. There are needs to provide for. There are needs for God to protect you. And it is never wrong to pray for those things. But, but I think for so many of us, we stop at the physical. And, and yet there are so many spiritual needs that we have. That, that really that ought to be the focus of our prayer. We ought to care more for our soul. We ought to care as much for our spiritual needs and being provided for as we do for our physical needs. And notice what, what is the substance of this prayer? What is his request? It's really one request. Now may God, the God of peace, and he has all of that uh, language to address God. Now may God, in verse 21, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. May God equip you with everything good that you may do his will. That's the request. And what a request it is. What, it, what does it mean to equip you that word means to render fit or to render sound or to, to render complete. It has the idea that there's something lacking. And, and this verb then, this, this word is to supply what is lacking there so, so that the thing is complete or so that it is ready to be used. It is used of the disciples when they're sitting by the Sea of Galilee, this is the word when it says that they're mending their nets. There's a problem. There, there's something uh, problematic, a hole or something's come apart there and they're, they're binding those nets back together. They're making them complete so that they are ready for use. It has the idea then to fit out or, or to equip. So if you get a new job, you're working in, in a factory or something, sometimes there's certain clothing that you need to wear. There's certain tools that you need to do the job. And when you go in for orientation, we're, hey, we're going to fit you out with everything that you need, right? We're going to give you the, the tools that you need, and we're going to give you the, Jared will give you the PPE, right? Is that what it's called? Personal protective equipment that you need to do this job. You're going to be given everything that you need so that you can do this job correctly and effectively. That's that's really what the word means, to, to fit out or, or to equip. It's used in 1 Thessalonians 3.10. He says, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. That's the same word that's here translated, translated to equip. Paul says, I want to see you all so that I can supply what is lacking in your faith. And so that's what he's praying. God, would you equip us? But what is, what is the end that he would equip us to? May he equip you with everything good that you may do his will. There, there's a particular task that we're called to. There's a particular purpose for this equipping. There's a job that is to be done. And that job for the Christian is to do the will of God. To do God's will is the focus of the Christian life. Paul says that the great calling of the Christian life in response to all that God has done for us is to sacrifice ourselves and to have our minds transformed to the end that we might discern what is the will of God. Listen to what he says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, 
by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what we are to do. And Paul is saying by the mercies of God, by the fact that everything that God has done for us, that's all by grace and grace alone, this salvation, this redemption that he's provided on the foundation of those mercies, I make an appeal to you then to sacrifice yourselves to God, which is your spiritual worship, and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We're to be transformed, having our minds made new. And the end of that, or the result of that, is that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. That's where all of that is leading. You offer yourself as a sacrifice. You give your mind to, to Scripture, to the Word of God, to be renewed and, 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 and to be made new and to think differently, to think according to God's Word, so that you may be able to know what God's will is. That's the end of the Christian life. Your response to everything that God has done for you is what, what does God want me to do? What is His will? What does He desire for me to do in my life? What should I be doing? What should I not be doing? That is the response of the Christian to all that God has done in the gospel. And that's what he's praying here. Would God equip you so that you'll have everything good that you need to do His will? The focus of your life ought to be knowing and doing what God desires for you to do and what he commands you to do. Even Jesus, he's our example, isn't he? And, and what did Jesus say? I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's how he lived his life. That's how we ought to live our life. That's the chief end. The, the chief goal in our life is to do the will of God. Jesus taught us to pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. And on the judgment day, Jesus said he's going to say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but who will enter the kingdom of heaven? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is an important dimension to the Christian life and what this text helps us understand then since we're praying to God that God would give us everything good that we need so that we could do his will we just saw that's that's what we ought to be thinking about I need to do God's will but I need to pray to God that he would give me what I need in order that I may then be able to do his will what what we need to understand in that then is that you and I are incomplete we're not fully equipped to do God's will we don't have in ourselves everything that we need to do God's will we're incomplete we're we're imperfect we're not suitable for the task of doing God's will if he's praying that we would be outfitted or or made complete or equipped to do God's will then we do not have in ourselves what is required to do God's will so I'll go back to my illustration before of you getting a job and maybe you go in you're an electrician or or maybe you're in maintenance and, and you show up for the first day of work and they say, okay, uh, we got this line down over here and we need you to go out and figure out what's going on, work on it and get that line up and running. We're waiting. And you say, wait a minute, I don't have any tools. I don't have any equipment to be able to go do that. I, I don't, I, you all haven't trained me even on, on what I need to be doing. Right? How foolish would that be? You would understand, I'm not equipped. I don't have what I need. Listen, that's what we need to understand in ourselves. That's who we are. 
We don't have the equipment. We don't have the training. We, we do not have the ability in ourselves apart from God giving us what we need to do the will of God. We are incomplete for the task of doing God's will. And we might say this, we are completely incomplete. <laughs> We're completely incomplete to do God's will because you notice what he says here, the prayer. Would, would God equip you with everything that you need? He doesn't say, may God equip you. You know, I know you've got some resources. I know you've got some ability. I know you've got some knowledge. I know you've got some resolve to do God's will. But maybe God would just just kind of fill up what's lacking. No, may God give you everything that you need. Everything that we need to do God's will comes from God Himself. We are completely incomplete. He is the source of all things. He doesn't say, uh, I'll give you most things, but, but that He would give us everything. It reminds me of the words of Jesus when He's talking to His disciples. And He says, apart from Me, you can do some things, a few things. You're not very good. Maybe, maybe you can get a few things. No, no. He says, apart from Me, you can do nothing unless I equip you, unless I empower you, unless my words abide in you, you don't have the ability in yourself to, to do any spiritual good. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Here it is asserted by way of a prayer that everything needed to do God's will comes in fact from God. This means that when we obey God, we are doing so exclusively out of the resources that He Himself has given to us. And that's clear, isn't it? From the very next phrase, which I haven't read yet, may God equip you with everything good that you may do His will. And then notice this next, this next little phrase. He's just describing uh, the process of what He's praying for. L look at it. Working in us, that is God working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. God is working in us what is pleasing to Him. Do you see that? He, he's giving us what we need so that we may do His will. And, and in that, that process could really be summarized that God is working in us what is pleasing to Him. He's the one who's doing it. This way of, of thinking is found other places in Scripture. I already mentioned where Christ said that apart from me you can do nothing, but the Apostle Paul teaches the same thing as well. 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, by, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. And when Paul says, by God's grace, I am what I am, he isn't just, it isn't a false piety or a false humility. You know, like, well, by the grace of God, I am what I am. No, no. He really means that everything that he is as an apostle, everything that he has accomplished is by the grace of God. As we sang earlier, by grace and grace alone. It isn't just grace at the start. Okay, you got the grace starter pack. Now it's your effort. Now it's your work. No, it's grace and grace alone. And that's what Paul is saying. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. See, there's our effort. There's, there's our work. But no, he goes on to say, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Even my working, Paul says, was given to me by the grace of God. The effort that I put out was an effort that was worked in my heart by the sovereign God who gives grace so freely. 
He says this same idea, this same concept in Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There it is. You've got to do it. It's got to come from you. You've got to have the strength. No, no, no. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Even your working out of your salvation is given to you by God. It's a, it's a gift of his grace. This idea is both humbling and encouraging. It's humbling because we really got to understand that we are completely incapable. We're like children. Do your children ever do this? Mine have all done this. They get to a certain point. And you're trying to help them when they're infants. They just do everything for them. And, and they get to a certain point where they start to think and reason out. And they say, no, I do it. No, I do. I want to do it. I do it by myself. Right? And you realize they're completely incapable of doing it by themselves. They, they, they do not have the ability to do what they're about to do. But they want to assert the fact that they think they can. Right? And so sometimes you... You teach them, and you say, okay, go ahead and do it, and then they just make a complete mess of it. All right, now let, let Daddy help you now. Let Mommy help you do that thing that you can't do. That's, that's the way we need to think about ourselves. It's all of God's grace. We, we should never get to the point where we say, oh, I, I'm going to do it. I do it by myself. It's my effort. It's my strength. No, it's all from God. It's all a gift of His grace. This is a humbling thought, but it's also an encouraging one because what this means is when we do recognize our inability, as, as life so often brings us to a point where, where you, know, you have that confidence when you're younger, and you, you get to be a teenager, I think that's the pinnacle of your pride, right? You think you know everything, you, you think you've got it all figured out, you feel so strong, but then life, little by little over time, starts to disabuse you of that idea, and you, you finally come to the point when you're about 40, you realize, I can't do anything, right? And, and when we get to that point, when we get to that point in, in our Christian life, what an encouraging thing to know that though we are completely incapable, God has the power God has the strength and God is willing to give us what we need to do his will. Jesus said, ask whatever you will in my name and it will be given to you. If you will ask God to give you the strength, to give you the resolve, to help you, he will do it. He can provide the strength to do these things. So what are these good things? He, he prays here that, that God would give them everything good. Well, this is a pretty broad term here, uh, and, and there's nothing specific listed out. What are those good things that we need to do God's will? And so I think we have some license uh, to just assume from other places in Scripture what those good things might be. be. Uh, this is not an exhaustive list, but I'll give you a, a few things that I think we ought to pray for. So if we're praying, God, give me what I need in order to do your will, maybe we could pray rather than just generally everything good as he does here. Maybe we could pray for some specific things. Lord, give me this so that I might do your will. Here are a few things. The first is we need a knowledge of his will. We need to know what his will is. What we need to understand is that humanity, apart from God's grace, apart from God revealing it, does not know what God's will is. There's not so much sort of out of just mere ignorance. 
the, the fact that we don't know God's will, but it's almost more of a, a willful ignorance, right? We, we don't want to know. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And, and when we want to do God's will, the, the place we need to begin is, is just to pray, God, would you reveal your will to me? Uh, more than just would you give me a head knowledge of your will, but, but would you incline my heart to want to obey your will? To, to do what your word commands me to do. This is why God's got to reveal his will to us. In fact, we actually see a prayer where the Apostle Paul prays that, that God would uh, re reveal his will to us. Colossians 1.9 says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. We already saw that Paul in Romans chapter 12 said this is the aim of your life, that, that you would give your life as a sacrifice, that your mind would be transformed so that you would then know the will of God. And now he's praying for the Colossians and we ought to pray for ourselves. God, would you fill me with a knowledge of your will? Again, more than just a head knowledge, but would you fill me with a, a, an understanding of what, what is right, what is wrong, what you desire for me to do, and would you incline me then to do that which you have commanded? He isn't praying for mere information, but for a heart that embraces His will. And that might be a second thing that we could pray for. We need to pray for love. Our affections drive or motivate our behavior. You do what you do because you love what you love. And this is why Jesus uh, says that the greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind. And in fact, he says that all of the law depends on that command. Why does all of the law of God depend on, first on the commandment to love God? Well, because when you love God, everything else flows out of that love. If you have love for God, then you will obey the rest of the commands. If you do not have love for God, you won't obey any of the commands in, in, in a true sense. And so we need love. If you're like me, we just recognize that so often our hearts are cold to the Lord and to, to spiritual things, to the Word of God. Our hearts grow cold toward one another. That Jesus said the, the second commandment is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Isn't it so easy for your affection for the Lord to begin to cool off? Well, if you're going to do the will of God, one of the things, one of the good things you need to be praying, God, give me love in my heart for you and for others. Lord, my, my, my tendency is to become a lover of myself, to become inwardly focused and to be cold toward you and, to, and toward others. So grant me a love within that I might do your will. A third thing that we could pray for is that God would give us strength. The call to obedience is a, a call to perseverance and we must rest in the strength and in the empowerment that God supplies. What you need to understand is like the old song says, right? Yeah, the, the arm of flesh will fail you. Ye dare not trust your own. 
Don't go about setting out to, to be obedient to God's will in your own strength and with your own resolve. You need to seek the strength that comes from the Lord. Paul says in Philippians 4.13 that I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Paul would recognize in myself I can do nothing, but through Him who strengthens me, I'm able to do all things. Isaiah says in Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We need to cry out to God. One of the good things that we need from the Lord is the strength and the resolve that only He can give. Listen, again, I can't be the only one that thinks, I'm going to do this. I'm going to just will myself to, to stay to this, to stay faithful to this, to complete this, right? And, and then in no time, the things that you've been so resolved to do just fall flat on your face. If we're going to do the will of God in a persevering kind of way, we need to rely on the strength that God gives. We could ask the question, though, doesn't God already supply us with everything that we need? So why is he praying here? And why would we pray, God, give me everything that I need so that I may be able to do your will? Well, in one sense, he does give us everything that we need. But what we need to understand is that prayer is the God-ordained means or the instrumentality of procuring that supply. The supply is there. It's, it's provided for us in Christ. But prayer is the God-ordained means by which we lay hold of that supply. You don't have all the tools. You don't have all the resources. God has supplied them to you, but by prayer and through faith, you lay hold of the supply that God has so freely given to you. Christian, you may be in a deficiency. You may be struggling to do God's will precisely because you have not been laying hold of the supply through prayer. You have not been crying out to God. God, give me what I need to do your will. I love the, the uh, phrase from, or, or the quote from Augustine. You may have heard this before, uh, but I, I meant to quote this earlier, but, it, but he says, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Give what you command. You see what he's saying there? Lord, command whatever you will, but then give me the ability to do what you command. And we need to do that. And we do that through prayer. James says that you have not because you ask not. What is it that you're lacking in your obedience of God? What is it that, that's hindering you? What is it that's slowing you down or keeping you from, from obeying God's will in your life? Whatever that is, pray to God and He will give you the good things that you need. Has your love for the Lord cooled? Pray to God. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The Spirit of God gives us love within our heart. Are you battling unbelief? Is that keeping you from obeying, from doing the will of God? Then pray like the man who was speaking to Jesus. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Strengthen me. Give me faith. Do you lack resolve to do what you know you should be doing? Well, then pray to God for strength. He will give it to you. Are you overwhelmed by temptation to sin? Listen, God will make an escape from that temptation. Ask Him. Are you continuing to battle impure thoughts from your past life of sin? Pray to God, God, create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Pray these things to the Lord. You may even be struggling to pray. You say, 
well, prayer is how I lay hold of God's supply for me to do His will, but, but I struggle even to pray. So, listen, praise the Lord that the Spirit is praising, praying for us and interceding for us, but if you're able to pray at all, cry out to God that He might enable you to even pray more effectively. Whatever you're lacking in, in your obedience to Christ, God will give it. Every good thing the final thing, and we'll close with this this morning, is the result of prayer. What is the end of our prayer? And we see it here, that he would, God is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. All the glory goes to God. Why? Because God is selfish? No. Because all the glory belongs to God. If he is working in us that which is pleasing to him, then he gets all the glory, right? It's it's all him. Everything good that's in my life is there because of God's work. It's him doing the work through me. So all the glory goes to God. That's the end of our life, that, that we would live for the glory of God.